0: This is going to be good. Today, we are looking at a company that in many ways helped shape AWS. That company, Netflix. Netflix set to make a run at being a big Hollywood studio with plans to release about 90 films a year. That's according to the New York Times. There will be originals along with indie films and then the addition of documentaries and animation as well. Yes, they changed television, but they also changed culture inside the tech world. And our guest, Adrian Cockcroft, was Netflix's major change agent.
1: Netflix was one of the first companies to really adopt the distributed nature of the cloud. AWS even took a lot of tips and learnings from Netflix, like what to test, how to test, and even how to talk about the cloud. Netflix articulated this better than anyone. So what can we all learn from Adrian's success and challenges? This is AWS Insiders, an original podcast from CloudFix, bringing you what you need to know about AWS through the people and the companies that know it best. I'm Rahul Subramaniam, and I'm the founder and CEO at CloudFix.
0: CloudFix is the nonstop automated way to find and fix AWS recommended cost savings. It never stops working. I'm Hillary Doyle. I'm the co-founder of Wealthy Works Daily. We often talk about the cloud being the center of the universe, but what we talk less about are the people and the companies that really shaped the cloud as we know it. Yes, we talk about Google, AWS, Microsoft, and we slag on Oracle. But with AWS in particular, its customer obsession means it really does take guidance on its growth from its customers. In the case of Netflix, you are going to hear from Adrian about just how far ahead of AWS early Netflix was. In other words, you have more to thank Netflix for than Bridgerton alone.
1: (laughs) Customer obsession is absolutely right, Hillary. Many years ago, I was told by AWS product managers that they never add a feature in AWS unless a customer has a real use case and has demanded it. Of all the AWS customers, I can say with a fair bit of confidence that Adrian has probably had some of the greatest impact in shaping AWS, even as a customer. Later in his career, of course, he made an even larger contribution as an AWS Insider.
0: Not just an AWS insider, maybe the ultimate AWS insider. But before we chat with Adrian, here are this week's AWS news headlines. First up, a news item for the fax machine nostalgics, the printer scanner haters, and the (laughs) pun lovers. Hold your hats. AWS has announced that its machine learning service, Textract, now has some serious accuracy enhancements for the analyzed document, forms feature. It's going to help folks better automate their document processing workflows. Rahul, I have high expectations for this service, so tell us how it's going to play out in real life.
1: Okay, now this might sound odd, but let me describe just some of the activities I've had on my plate this week.
0: I'm looking forward to this.
1: (laughs) I've been filling out my expense reports from five weeks of crazy travel, And of course, filling my income tax returns, which is tax season in India. Right. Now, sifting through all these bank brokerage and insurance documents, it's been quite a pain. Uh Now, I would have been a raging mess today if it weren't for the automation that I built with Textract to sift through all of these documents and submit all of my data to my chartered accountant.
0: Nice plug.
1: (laughs) Now, imagine the other side of this exercise where organizations that need to process thousands of these documents on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Textract is awesome at doing just that. It's been around for a while, in fact, and it just got a lot better. Now, we've been talking so much about generative AI that we've forgotten some of these amazing AI tools from Amazon that have been around for years and continue to solve some critical real-world problems.
0: Mm-hmm. People tend to ignore and or underestimate anything that features a pun. So I feel text tracks <laughs> pain. Listen, we're going to stay in this world of machine learning. But first, a bit of context might be helpful. Embeddings are numerical representations or vectors. They're created from generative AI and help to capture the semantic meaning of a text input so that it can feed into a large language model. Amazon Aurora PostgreSQL Compatible Edition now supports the PG Vector extension to store embeddings from machine learning models in your database and to perform efficient similarity searches. In other words, it can store and search embeddings in Amazon Bedrock, in SageMaker, the list goes on. How should we think about using or deploying this, Rahul?
1: Okay, so we are back to talking about generative AI and large language models.
0: Good. So good to be back here.
1: (laughs) So the challenge here is where and how do we store all of these vectors? Now, Aurora now supports PG vector, which means that developers who are already familiar with Postgres, which is one of the most popular databases in the world, Mm -hmm. can now start using it to store vectors as well. It really flattens that learning curve for all of us who are just trying to keep our heads above water when it comes to keeping up with all the developments that are in the Gen AI space right now. right. Most importantly, it's also a reminder that when you make a bet on the cloud, benefits like this are free and nonstop.
0: Hmm. We're going to pivot hard over to the Greeks. Because we love all things Greek on this podcast. Which brings us to the great news we have this week from AWS Lambda, which can now detect and stop recursive loops in Lambda functions. Glory be! Rahul, why do we need this and why is it good news for the health of your Lambda functions?
1: Okay, so you already know that I'm a huge fan of Lambda, mostly because of its pricing. Now, it costs you a dollar for a million invocations of a Lambda function, right? (laughs) That just blows my mind. That said, there have been times when my Lambda bills ran into thousands of dollars in a matter of minutes. Mm. And we trace them back to the fact that there was a problem with the way some logic was implemented and Lambdas just got called over and over again. And of course, at a crazy scale. Wow! Now, what I love about this solution is that AWS didn't just build a solution that detects such situations and halts execution, saving you from these massive bills. Mm -hmm. But they turned it on as a default for everyone. And they made it really hard to turn it off. You actually have to call customer support and beg them and make your case.
0: Nobody's going to do that.
1: (laughs) Exactly. No one should do that. Mm -hmm. So AWS is working incredibly hard to prevent customers from causing harm to themselves with all this amazing power.
0: Well, thank you for that wrap up. Uh, That's it, my friends, for this week's AWS News Headlines. Joining us now is Adrian Cockroft. Adrian is a best selling author, a musician, a tech advisor, and an executive who oversaw Netflix's original move to the cloud. He then joined AWS, where he became VP of Sustainability Architecture. He is also a founding member of eBay Research Labs. Adrian, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thanks for having me. Great to be here.
0: It's great to have you. Let's start here. Netflix was one of the first companies to truly embrace the cloud. You went all in on a new and relatively unproven technology. You took a whole company with you, and then that migration took seven years. Now, there is a corporate and a personal answer here, and I'm hoping you'll share the personal with us. How do you maintain the confidence of your convictions over seven years?
2: In 2008, Netflix had a very large outage. We were down for several days in our data center. And that was what really got the question going, are we doing the right thing? Should we be doing something different from the way we run our systems? And at the same time, we were running a DVD business that was growing, but it was a pretty small footprint to run the DVD business. Customers interacted with it once a week to pick some different movies. Most of it was, the delivery was over you know, over the mail system. So when we turned on streaming, you're interacting with that all the time. So basically, the compute load per customer went up by a factor of, I don't know, a thousand or something. Per customer streaming versus per customer on DVD shipping.
0: <laughs> right. So
2: we were going like, um, we need to start building big data centers or we need something else. And we didn't know how big, and we didn't know quite what we were going to need. So we couldn't capacity plan effectively. And that was one of the big drivers for moving to cloud. So we said, okay, let's talk to Amazon in 2008. And they basically said, uh, we're not ready for you. Go away for a year. Oh, wow. <laughs> and... <laughs> Yeah, and the only way you could buy AWS then was on a credit card. Really? That's true. Right. There was no corporate purchasing, <laughs> there were no sales teams, there was no sales rep at all at AWS. And so that was one of the pioneering things we did with AWS. And it's sort of it's a different kind of enterprise deal than what you typically get with other enterprise technology providers, and part of that is from the influence that I think Netflix had on it. So the first things we did were not customer facing. So in 2009, we got movie encoding working. So that's just a bunch of you know, you get raw video in and you need to encode it down to the right formats for streaming. We had at one point, we said, oh, let's set an autoscaler to 4,000 and see what happens. And we had 4,000 <laughs> machines appeared and we went, wow, this is, took about an hour or so. So that's cool. We just needed them for an hour or two. Um, so that was one of those moments when you realize that yeah, this cloud thing actually works for in, in ways that you can't do that in a data center. And then in 2010, we started moving the front end of Netflix, all the web pages that you'd interact with. Um, and that took about nine months. So by, by the time we got to Christmas, we, so the, the thing was, if we didn't do that, we'd need a new data center. That, you need, so there was yeah. a hard... Limit. If we don't do this in this time, we'll run out of capacity. Right. So we, we had a picture of, in all our pre- presentations of a plane going down the runway, and it either crashed into the, you know, crashed <laughs> oh into God. a building at the end of the <laughs> runway, or it took off. <laughs> so by the end of 2011, so it's really a two-year migration the thing you think of as the Netflix product was running in the cloud. Mm-hmm. So it's really a two-year migration. Billing was still being done in the data center. Corporate IT was in the data center. It took many more years to get rid of all of that stuff. But what you think of as the Netflix product was up and running in the cloud. Adrian, the way you describe this feels like the cloud was a very natural
1: and easy choice to make when given the choice between a data center and the cloud. However, today, when you look at the enterprise landscape, there are still a large number of enterprises that are still very reluctant and hesitant to adopt the cloud. What, in your opinion, both, I mean, having lived on both sides of the uh, of, of this particular story, which is at Netflix and at AWS, why do you think that hesitation
2: is still there even a decade down the line? I think, in some sense... Even if you go back to before this, I used to work at Sun Microsystems, and Sun was trying to do cloud in about 2002, 2003. Right, right. Yep. And Sun only knew how to sell to CIOs, didn't understand credit card selling. <laughs> there was there was no direct to consumer, and the CIOs didn't like cloud then, and they don't like it now. They, you know, a CIO likes to have a. I built a big data center on their resume. It's a bit of a cynical <laughs> way of looking at it. I think everybody now has something in the cloud if you were a big company that had been around a long time, you also have something in the data center. So then the question is, where are you putting most of your investment? And the, you know, if if sort of 80% of your budget for new things is going into AWS, then we'll say, okay, you're all in on AWS. That's sort of, there's some large proportion. It doesn't mean that absolutely everything is, but most of it is. And those, you know, AWS is very good at making those customers successful. And the other thing that's been going on recently is a lot of cost cutting right right so the nice thing about when you're on the cloud is you do some performance tuning and next month your cloud bill is down by 20% or 30% or depending on how hard you you worked at it and you just stop spending so much right right if you're in a data center you've capitalized your 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 spend is locked in and then the other thing i see in enterprises in particular, is the way they're using cloud Are terrifically inefficient. Very true. I mean, they were inefficient (laughs) in the data center and they took the same practices to the cloud and they're using cloud very, very inefficiently as well. Uh, One of the things that I was quite proud of at Netflix was Netflix runs extremely efficiently, very high utilization, very low waste, very highly tuned and gets the most out of what it's running on and has done that from the beginning.
0: When you talk about AWS in those early days, it really sounds like you were leading them into their own technology. Can you tell us a little bit about what that relationship was like early on with AWS?
2: Yeah, um, it was very much a partnership, and that's something I've seen. I've been on both sides of that now. Mm-hmm. Uh, AWS is very good at listening to its customers about what what's needed. With Netflix, was so early that you know things like. The security model wasn't, didn't exist, right?
1: Yeah, I mean IAM did not exist back in two thousand nine. It came much later. I mean, you just had a single account with one user, and you had to potentially share that with everyone in your organization.
2: Yeah, we had to. We were using EC two classic, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we had security groups, and that was it. Yeah, and and it, it worked, and. AWS now has so many services. I actually don't know how to use AWS anymore. I really only know how to use at a- a- 2 Classic because it was simple oh enough that I could figure it out. But I wasn't ever really that hands-on anyway. I was I was sort of architecting the system rather than to, rather than sort of building bits of it. We had a mm-hmm. weekly meeting. We had two weekly meetings with AWS. One was the account team talking about all the latest issues, what's going on us telling them, hey, we're launching in Europe. We need a thousand machines in Dublin. And they're going, OK, fine, and whatever. And then that was easy. They said, yeah, we're easy, have a thousand machines in Dublin, that's not a problem. And then we said, OK, we're going to replicate all of Netflix U.S. in Oregon. And they said, oh, hang on a minute, um, we need to schedule some hardware for that.
0: <laughs> Let's set up a
2: lunch. Yeah. I like to say you want to be a small fish in a big pond, preferably an ocean. Um, you don't want to be a shark in a paddling pool, mm-hmm. right? Right. And and there, if you try to run Netflix in some of the smaller regions, it just wouldn't fit. Right. It's it's a very big footprint, and we were growing fast, so we were hitting limits and uh, things like that. And the whole limits management became a, a big issue. And there was a second weekly meeting. It was more of a training meeting where they do a deep dive on some new thing that we we're doing. Mm-hmm. At some point, though, we we hired Jeremy Edberg. He'd been at Reddit, which was another large AWS customer. And he joined us, and his reaction was, because he'd been on the customer advisory board and things like that, and he thought he was pretty plugged into AWS. And he joined us and said, they tell you everything. They didn't tell us all these things. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a very deep, a lot of... A lot, a very deep level of disclosure going on, and that comes from building trust. Yes. Yeah. Right. So Netflix was providing very deep feedback and needed to understand what was going on, and that trust was really the key thing that made all that work.
0: Do you think that that back and forth made you both move faster?
2: Sure. Yeah. Netflix moves way faster than AWS. We was waiting for them to do stuff. Netflix is ridiculously fast at getting things done. Yes. Mostly because it's not trying other than, I mean, there's APIs to TV sets that are very stable, but internally you can turn things over very quickly. If you're building public services like AWS does, you have to bake them a lot more. So sort of the pace of it, but AWS was moving vastly faster than all the other enterprise mm-hmm. providers that you could talk to. So that was mostly the, the way it felt. So Adrian, at
1: Netflix, back you know, in 2009, 2010, you had already started building a culture, which was a paradigm shift from what existed across pretty much every other enterprise out there, right? I mean, the way you thought about technology, the way you drove the adoption of all this distributed computing, stateless services, serverless, all of that stuff, it was fundamentally different in every way from what had happened in the past. What was that core thing that held that culture together or that created that culture of taking those risks? Because at that time, it was all risk. Taking those risks, making those bets, and,
2: you know, moving on with it. The culture was already there. It was set up at the beginning. Netflix was set up with a very different culture. as the Netflix culture deck. There's a whole story around that. But that was really just publishing the way that they worked internally anyway. And when I was being interviewed in 07, I went, this just sounds fascinating. I mean, if this is real. I want to be part of it just to figure out how it works. Netflix at the time, at least, was very very willing to try things, mm. very uh, able to try what looked like most people would think was too risky, and to make it work. So we weren't just the earliest user of AWS at scale. We were the first people to use NGINX and um, kind of helped create nginx as a company that wrote a check to the guy that had built this open source thing, saying <laughs> we need support, and he had to form a company to cash the check kind of level of. And, and then uh, Jfrog, artifactory, one of the first customers for that, right. And let me think Cassandra with uh, Datastax, um, not just the partnership there, we had committers on the Cassandra project. What you get with that is that you, particularly with startups, you become one of the marquee customers that they have. Right. You get huge discounts. I mean, the marketing value of Netflix is worth more than you can pay the customer. That's true. So it's almost like the, the other way around. So it becomes very cost-effective to use things to be like that. And, and similarly with AWS, we needed to be in a very strong partnership so that AWS saw us as... Because uh, Amazon Prime's a competitor. So right. you want to make sure that, that AWS feels that it has to be super supportive of Netflix <laughs> and be very publicly supportive of Netflix so that if it ever, you know, if Prime ever said, can you stop doing that because it's helping Netflix, they'd say, no, we can't do know We have to right. be. So, So that was part of the way that Netflix managed all of these suppliers, was to get a really good deal.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about the culture at Netflix. Was Chaos Monkey just a logical evolution of that culture? Or did you see a shift once Chaos Monkey and Chaos Engineering were really
2: integrated? That came from so the previous hardware architecture we had was IBM P Series machines, Oracle, lots of corporate stuff, but it still went down. So the the promise was that this was going to be super reliable hardware. Mm. And we and it wouldn't and we would and the software and the developers could ignore failures because the ops people would take care of it and it would all just happen. work. Yeah, yeah, and of course it kept going down. And uh, we had SAN corruption, storage area network corruption was what took us down for three days. So we basically said, well that didn't work. So if if we assume that the machines we're running on are unreliable, then we can run on cheap machines, mm-hmm. and make them disposable, and we and there's this uh, cattle versus pets analogy that some of you may know. Exactly how much milk do I We
0: appreciate have. cattle here too, though. We, we give them a lot of respect.
2: So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we need
0: to change the analogy, yeah. but, but we do hear you.
2: Yes. So we switched from pets to, to cattle as the analogy. Everything we deployed was an autoscale group. And the, initially we had those set at fixed levels. And when you want to grow an autoscaler, you just set it up, and now you've got more machines. But if you want to shrink it, you have to figure out, how do I shut down a machine? And do I have to carefully drain all of the traffic from it, and very gently, you know, make sure it's fine before I turn it off, or do I just turn it off and the system will deal with it? So what the chaos monkey did was it just went around and every now and again would pick an autoscale group and shut down a machine, and the autoscaler put it back again. And that we were exercising autoscaling, scale down, and resilience against failures. And we were running on you know cheap Intel hardware. At that time, the failure rate of the original M1 series instances that AWS had was a lot higher than the machines today. So you can look at the original Chaos Monkey itself as really a, an architecture design control that says we are auto-scaling and we want to scale down as well as up. That's one way of looking at it, as well as saying we don't want any state on any of these machines. The state goes somewhere else. We don't want any... Um, z- session-aware cookies and things like that. So that yeah. was the model. And then we had a chaos um, gorilla which shut down the <laughs> whole zone. And it picked the zone at random at <laughs> runtime. Whenever you ran it, you didn't know which zone was going to go down. Um, and it would just shut down all of the capacity in that zone. And they started running that every couple of the weeks.
0: A little simian army.
2: Yeah, and then there was another one for checking security stuff. It would go and try and make sure the certs went timing out security monkey. They're all just sort of demons. And then... I know Janitor Monkey would clean up all of the unattached EBS volumes and other junk like that that people would leave lying around. (laughs) Yeah. And Chaos Kong was zone, was region level. If we shut, if we switched out of one region and, you know, because Netflix at that time was running in East and West. So we'd switch all of the traffic to West and make sure that that worked or switch the traffic from Europe to East make sure that we could tolerate the loss of one of the three regions.
0: We're pressing pause on the monkey talk just for a moment because, well, Rahul, you tell him.
2: <laughs> well,
1: this podcast isn't the only way to hear all about AWS and feel like an insider. You have to check out the AWS Made Easy livestream.
0: Every week, Rahul is joined by AWS enthusiast, Stephen Barr, along with some amazing guests from AWS herself to talk about what's new and most importantly, to answer any questions you may have live.
1: You can find out more at cloudfix.com slash We stream on LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, and Twitter. So please join us.
0: All right, I'm hitting the play button. Let's get back to Netflix. So, Adrian, all of these stories I hear about Netflix just smack of such certainty and confidence. And I want to understand how much of that was actually true. I mean, as you were making this migration, were there moments of doubt where you thought maybe a hybrid solution is better or, you know, have we made the right call? Did you personally have any of these moments? It's just you and me here.
2: Well, it it wasn't a young company. Right. I wasn't the oldest engineer. We didn't have any graduate hires. For interns, it was a bunch of senior people that had done it over and over again, mm. um, taking everything they'd learned from decades of experience. I had 30 years experience then, right? So the company itself was pretty mature. It was a decent size, but we everything we did was to de-risk. So at some point, another story I can tell you, there was an argument over how we were going to replicate state between Virginia and Oregon, mm. right? Right. And we are having an argument in a meeting over whether it would work just using Cassandra or whether we needed to build a service to replicate the data over. And so I came out of this meeting and said, well, let's just try it. I wandered over with the Cassandra manager that was in the meeting with uh, and went over to one of the engineers and said, we just got a bunch of machines. I think we had 96 machines, 48 machines in Virginia and 48 in Oregon that we hadn't deployed yet. Does, can we just run a test on it? Let's just set it up as a 96-node Cassandra cluster and just beat the crap out of it. Just run it, <laughs> run it write, write as much stuff as you can and just see, does it get there? And she said, sure. And you know, it was about 4 p.m. So by the end of that day, the cluster existed and was you know, loading up um, a recent backup of data. And then she came in the next day and pushed all of the, you know, was running this some benchmarks. And we called Amazon before because we were running about, the bandwidth across the country was like 480 gigabits per second. Wow. Um, <laughs> we didn't actually end up pushing that much, but we could have, you know, it turns out Cassandra was single-threaded. We yeah, about, that was single-threaded
1: then. Yep.
2: We ended up running about 10 gigabits per second of replication traffic for, for a while, which wasn't too bad. But we didn't know that at the time. It was plenty. But anyway, it turns out we had... Without doing anything to anything we'd got we had a, at least ten times more capacity than we needed to do it so you know went to the next meeting the following week and said we ran this test I mean the, the whole configuration existed for a few hours we retired that risk got it went to the meeting said if you don't like our test, run your own test and they went, <laughs> okay but fine we'll just do it that way and that's as far as I know the way they still do replication so that's the we did that over and over again we'd run if somebody's had an idea, you just run a test to retire that risk or prove that it worked or didn't work. And that the ability to do that in the cloud by just firing stuff up in, in a few hours was revelationary. Like, that's nothing like my old days back at Sun yeah. Microsystems. We'd sort of have to go argue for budget and go build something in the lab, and it would be months. We, we were doing stuff in hours that would, that would previously in a data center would take months or be completely impractical. Yeah, and you go to go talk to your ops people and say, "I need a hundred machines, and scattered around the <laughs> world for a few hours, and see what happens." <laughs> right? True. It's not
1: happening. So, Adrian, we've spoken a lot about open source and a bunch of other partnerships, also that you had. But, I mean, at Netflix, you guys kind of pioneered a lot of the open source AWS tooling or cloud tooling, so to speak, which was. In a certain sense, Netflix could have taken the view that this is intellectual property because it sets Netflix apart from other competitors, but instead decided to open-source it and really bring about a lot of the acceleration in folks moving into AWS. What was the specific thinking behind it? Why was the decision to open-source it instead of keeping it all internal?
2: So we were moving from an enterprise centric world in the data center where we had contracts with Oracle and we used Aqualogic and all these, you know, we had, I forget who the different vendors were, but we had all of these enterprise deals that were expensive. Right. And we were moving to the cloud where we were running on, a hundred times more machines, like the node count was up enormously. We had really only, the data center was only ever like a hundred machines or something right. maximum. And there were eight backends or something like six Oracle databases or something. It wasn't, it wasn't scaled out. We couldn't afford the enterprise licensing. Oh, licensing by the we core. Didn't want, we didn't want to pay for enterprise <laughs> licensing. So we made a conscious decision to move to open source. Mm as we went to cloud. So it wasn't just a cloud transition, it was an enterprise to open source. And this was one way we cut our costs, because you know, yep. Cassandra is a lot cheaper than Oracle. And getting yourself off of Oracle is a whole problem on its own, <laughs> sure. as many people have discovered. So that was that was part of it. Then we started fixing things like Cassandra, and building things and saying, well, we need to contribute the fixes. So we need to understand how to contribute to open source projects, because we're fixing the code. So we, you know, signed up for the Apache Foundation, did a contributor license that covered the whole company, and said, Okay, if it's Apache license, you can contribute fixes, don't need to talk to anyone, just you know, tell us you did it, right? You don't need to get legal approval or whatever. Got it. If it's some other license, talk to legal and we'll deal with that. And then somebody said, Well, I got this completely new thing I've built that I'd like to open source. And it's a new project. So and said, should I go and get the lawyers to look at it? And it says, well, if you think the lawyers are going to find any bugs in your code, sure, but it's not really. This is kind of the attitude. This was my manager at the time, Yuri, the VP of, of cloud. He was, he said, there's an there's a email, I think it got copied into a presentation once. Um, so Jordan Zimmerman was the guy. And the, the code was a ZooKeeper library called Curator. And we ended up putting it out there. It actually, it's now part of the ZooKeeper distribution. I mean, it's it's a top-level Apache project. But it was the first thing we put out, and it created a process around, okay, so we need to be able to put these things out there. So that was part of it. And then there were two other reasons for doing open source. Well, Actually, there were like three or four different reasons. One was we wanted to be able to hire people that were interesting people that had open source project experience. So that was one. We wanted to make sure the way we were using AWS, that more people were using AWS the same way. And one way of doing that was to put out the way we operated as code. So people that adopted our code would would use AWS with a similar pattern to us. So we wouldn't end up as a shark in a paddling pool.
0: I love that analogy.
2: Got it. <laughs> yeah, we want to be surrounded by lots of other people doing things the same way. So it was in Netflix's best interest to make AWS successful and have as many other companies come in as possible. Uh, I spent a lot of time encouraging Capital One to to do that. You know, I was personally involved and did some contract work with them after I left Netflix. So Capital One was probably like one of the next really big significant things. It was the first bank to really commit to AWS, and they followed a lot of the path that we took. They have a big open source program, right? Just yeah, you know, they did a lot of the same things. And the the final reason was to build a technology brand for Netflix. And it may feel Odd Now, everyone thinks of Netflix as a high-tech company. At the time, it was not seen like that. Netflix was some little backwater company deep in the South Bay. They weren't really doing high-tech. They were tiny. They had some stuff to do with recommender algorithms that was cool, and that was the only thing anyone thought was cool at Netflix. Mm-hmm. And we were a, a movie brand or a TV brand, right? It's, it's content. So, what we did was we deliberately created a technology brand as a Halo brand around the movie experience, partly so we can hire people, partly to get better leverage with startups and discounts and things like that. And and partly, as I said, to just be contributing back and be able to hire the kind of people that contribute back a lot.
1: Adrian, I'd love to finish up by hearing what advice you have for anyone in the process of moving to the cloud.
2: If you're, are there still really people that are still in that deciding to move to cloud thing? Lots. Really?
1: It's, it's shockingly okay. a very, very large number of people.
2: Okay. So the book that I'd read is The Value Flywheel Effect by David Anderson. Right. It came out last year. It talks about how to map out what's important to your company and what isn't. And how to use Wadley Mapping, which is a very powerful strategy technique to decide what to do. And it tells stories of Liberty Mutual, which is a 150 or so year old insurance company, how they are they are one of the fastest moving companies now. You can have an idea for a product there and roll it out tomorrow. Like a new insurance product. Yep. It's, which is insane. Nobody could do that, right? But they are doing things like that. They are not just rolling out code updates Mm. in a day. They're doing completely new products, completely new services, customer-facing in in hours Mm. rather than weeks or months. And if that sounds ridiculous, then you need to go read the book to see how they do that.
0: Unfortunately, we have to leave it here. Thank you so much for being with us, Adrian, and for sharing your incredible stories.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Adrian. Uh, Happy to share it. Thank you. And it's been an absolute pleasure listening to all of these stories and learning from you. Thank you so much.
2: Cheers.
0: Adrian is a walking masterclass in business and culture building. I loved hearing about Netflix's rationale for moving to open source. They just didn't wanna pay for enterprise licensing. <laughs> Who cannot relate to that? Bonus points to them for then using their open source code base as a way to fish for employees out in the wild, because, you know, now Netflix could actually interview prospects who'd already dug into and familiarize themselves with the code. is a brilliant way of protecting a culture of individual exploration, efficiency, and excellence. You know, Netflix really mixed the ingenuity and agility of a startup with a deep, vast experience in its employee base, and that combination works. Offline, I want to mention that Adrian also highlighted the difference between cultures at Netflix and AWS. He said that AWS, as we know, is driven by processes that aid collaboration within and among its teams. So if there's a problem, you sort of, you look to resolve it at the process level. Whereas at Netflix, he spoke about assembling an Olympic team. You're hiring for excellence and then you get out of the way. So if your Olympian doesn't perform, then you know you've made the wrong hire and you solve for that It's two very different approaches to culture building and two extremely successful outcomes.
1: I was also fascinated by how forward the mindset at Netflix was, even in those early days. I mean, they truly grasped the idea of what the cloud could do for them and embraced it wholeheartedly. I mean, you could say that they didn't really have a choice, (laughs) especially at their scale. But even today, you see so many organizations go the other way when faced with similar choices. I mean, I absolutely love the stories about the deep collaboration between Netflix and AWS that literally shaped AWS and its services. Even though you could say Prime Video and Netflix are probably arch rivals in the media and the entertainment space. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is in contrast to so many organizations that are still debating whether a bet on AWS is going to cause some sort of conflict of interest. I mean, both Netflix and AWS have such differentiated cultures that allowed them to grow rapidly together. I mean, there's just so much to learn from both these organizations.
0: Is there ever. But enough from us. What do you think? If you have thoughts on this show or anything, AWS, please reach out to us at podcast at
1: And we'd really appreciate a review in your favorite podcast app and if you told your friends to check us out.
0: AWS Insiders is brought to you by CloudFix. They are an AWS cost optimization tool, and you can learn more about them at cloudfix.com.
1: Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.